That was the voice of Toki Tai, the Southern resident orca who just died at the Miami Seaquarium after 53 years in captivity. If you listened to Scanna before, you know that sound is not our regularly scheduled orca. Usually our episodes begin and end with the voice of Moby Doll. You thought that was the sound effect? Nope. That is Moby Doll, the first orca displayed in captivity and the star of my book, The Killer Whale Who Changed the World. I have been telling stories about orcas for so long that when I started to tell this one, I realized I don't always talk about why I share so many stories about the critically endangered southern resident orcas. The main reason Toki's family is critically endangered is because of us, because they were the first and most brutal casualties in the age of killer whale captures, an era that began with Moby Doll in 1964. No other orca population paid the same price for the era when humans were regularly catching, selling, and displaying the whales we used to call killers. I'm not aware of any other animal population, period, that suffered the way this population, this particular ecotype, suffered. Toki was part of an entire generation of orcas who were torn from their families. When she was captured in 1970, 53 years ago this August, almost every other southern resident orca was trapped in the same net with her, screaming in terror. And the more we get to know these whales, the more we realize these are all individuals with their own personalities, their own story. And Toki, her story is heartbreaking and inspiring. And we will be ending off today's show with a longer clip from Toki. And I really hope you'll stick around for it. Hi, I'm Mark Laren Young, and this is Scanna, a podcast for fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. And today I am talking with Howard Garrett from the Orca Network. When the Miami Seaquarium publicly agreed to work with a friend called Friends of Toki and the Lummi Nation to return this orca to her home in the Sailor Sea, Howard Garrett was my very first call. He has been fighting to bring this orca home since 1995, and I wanted to know how real he thought these plans were. And much to my shock, Howard was optimistic. He was about to be flown out to see Toki. And I said, we should talk right after that so you can share all your observations. You can tell us how she's doing. And then she died after getting a clean bill of health earlier that week. She died as suddenly and shockingly as an elderly orca can. And we're still waiting for the results of the necropsy as I record this to find out exactly how and why she died. Howard and I spoke the very next day after her death. Howard was in Friday Harbor, Washington, still in shock, still heartbroken, and still determined to share Toki's story. As soon as we were done, he was off to host a memorial. And what came through most in our conversation was Howard's love for his friend. If you'd like to make it possible for me to share more stories about orcas and all things ocean and eco, please join our pod at patreon.com. Subscribe to our Substack newsletter. It's got bonus features about all the animals and issues we cover. It's also got some stories that I've been writing about Toki. Paid subscription would be fantastic. And please share our work. It's more essential than ever. And please share our episodes, our Substack newsletter, our social media. We're still on most outlets, really hoping to step off them soon. But now it's time to remember the inspiring orca known as Toki, Toki Tai. Lolita 
and Scully Chachtuna with Howard Garrett. As we start, I have just asked Howard to talk about his connection with this very special whale. My connection with Tokitai goes back to 1995 when uh, my brother, Ken Balcom, started the campaign by announcing it with the governor and secretary of state at his side at a press conference. And I went ahead and started the organization to actually conduct the campaign. And I didn't really know much about her. And I thought, well, this is a worthy cause and uh, she certainly should be back. And it when we knew the Southern residents well, and we knew that she belonged with them, and that she was a very strong whale because she was a Southern resident. So I thought, it's a good campaign, but I didn't really know much about her, except that she was, even in 1995, a survivor. That she held on long beyond all the others, uh, which of Probably 40 to 45, the counts have always been very unreliable, but that were taken from Southern residents. They were all dead by 1987, and yet she was still alive. So there was something special about her. I knew that. But over the years, I've really gotten to know her much, much better. And I've gotten to understand that she is not just a survivor, but that she has unbelievable courage and compassion at the same time. She is so gentle with the trainers and with anybody that goes around. And I just have gained this kind of beyond respect, a certain kind of awe at her her patience, her grace, her ability to to flow with her horrible circumstances and to not ever strike out, to not ever erupt in any kind of hostility or even, you know, clap a jaw at anybody. She just does what she's expected to do for the most part. She may refuse and she will do tricks on people. She will play with their heads or splash water on them or do little uh, prankster acts like that, but she doesn't. Uh, seem to to have any real hostility toward anybody and given her circumstances and everything that happened to her I find that admirable can you talk about why I mean to my mind she was so far and away the best candidate to go back in the oceans can you talk a little bit about why and about her recognizing the calls of her family because to me, that is such an important part of her story. I really feel like she would have thrived and been thrilled and so relieved to be in her familiar waters. I, I, I strongly believe that she has had, I'm sorry to have to put it in past tense, but had that memory capacity to have vivid recall of her days before her years, her at least four, and it could have been more like five or six years. We don't know exactly how long she was at capture, but that she has vivid recall of her entire life, her family life, 
the undersea topography, uh, the where the fish are, how to catch them, how to share them, her role, her place in her family, maybe her her life ahead, her destiny to be a, a matriarch, a leader in her family. I believe that was all in her head and, and much more important to her than the life that she was in, even for 53 years. I believe that she saw her life in captivity as an aberration, as a, a mistake, a detour that shouldn't happen, that will be over someday. And I I think she held that in her heart and in her in her mind as as uh, that she will be back home someday, and th- th- that's why the repeated messages from the industry and that have been ramped up in the last couple of months when it became more and more clear that she was on her way home. These messages came out and were circulated and to the permitting agencies to NOAA without a doubt, that she has never known anything but captivity, that she couldn't possibly go back home, that it would be just such a terrible shock and, and it would be a, a disservice and it would probably kill her. And that's the message that has been out there. So my strategy, I guess you could say, is to tell the truth, to tell what is really true about her family ties, her connections, and all of that was demonstrated by her calls, that she uses these calls that only her family uses. And they have been analyzed by the experts, by John Ford and by Elisa Lemire Brooks and Monica Shields and, and several others who have identified a variety of Southern resident calls that she makes. And they've had to be smuggled out. We only have uh, you know, a total of about a minute of calls to analyze because they were never professionally recorded. And a big irony is that Joe Olson, who is uh, the builder of hydrophones, was on his way, literally in the air, flying to Miami on Friday when she died. So he was there, he was going to record her in a professional way for hours and be able to get the kind of recordings that could be analyzed and really see what kind of calls she is making. But unfortunately, she died before he got there. So we don't have a good professional that I know of, a good professional recording of of her calls. That would be so important to have. So that's an opportunity missed. But they demonstrate, even what we have already demonstrate clearly that she has that memory of those calls that she learned. I mean, she was raised. She was taught by her mother. She was taught by her whole family. She conversed with them. She was a a member in good standing of the family and bonded for life. And I believe uh, she would have fit right back in when she came back. Now, it was always my understanding that we knew that she was LPOD and that the suspicion was, I'm not sure why it's a suspicion or if any, because I've I've sort of seen people backing off this, the idea that Ocean Sun is her mother. Mm -hmm. Do we know that or why is that believed? Yeah, no, it is believed because it makes sense. It's logical, but it's not proven. We don't have any results from DNA, although the DNA has been available. Uh, from Ocean Sun, from fecal samples, but also from Toki, of course. But 
nobody, to my knowledge, has uh, sent the samples to the lab to be able to, you know, compare. So we don't have any proof of whether or not she is, uh, L25 is Toki's actual mother, but she's the right age. She was there as an adult, a probably a, a middle-aged adult with several offspring already when Toki was captured in 1970. Uh, and she's still alive today. She was photographed yesterday or day before yesterday uh, when the L12s came in. Uh, it was just beautiful out in the sunset kind of by herself. And that's kind of an uncanny thing that, uh, you know, should be told that not only L12s, but all of the southern residents came in. The last three of them came in today or were photographed today. But they all came in at the same time. And, you know, they haven't all come in like that for, I don't know, it's well over a year. It could be a couple of years. Well, yeah, the last recall I have is when J57 was born in Strait of Juan de Fuca, south of San Juan Island, and all of J's, K's, and L's came in to meet the new baby. I mean, it was as if that, and then they had a big superpod gathering celebration, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of aerial acrobatics and splashing behavior, and then they all left with the baby. And now here they come in at the time of Toki's death. I can't explain it. I don't know if it's, you know, just happens to be the same day, but there they are. And there was... Toki's presumed mother, certainly a close relative, and certainly the last Southern resident still alive who was present when Toki was taken in 1970, so the one who knew Toki best. And she was out by herself, photographed in the sunset about uh, 7 or 8 p.m. on Thursday evening. There's a tie in there, and I don't... I. I don't think that she could have been held back. <laughs> you know, I know the presumed wisdom is that uh, she would not ever be allowed to return to her family, that that would be just too dangerous and it would violate the Endangered Species Act. And, and so the permitting agencies would never allow that. I have a feeling if she had come back, even under those stipulations that she would have found a way to convince people that she had to go back and be with her family. And I think I think it would have happened. And I think she would have rejoined them. You know, she had the language, you know, and as, especially if L-25 was still around, she had a friend, she had a mother, or a presumed mother, or a surrogate mother, I can't say for sure. But I think they would have paired up and, and uh, Toki would have been adopted. Can you talk about your work with Lumination on trying to bring her home? Lumination has brought a beautiful traditional value and knowledge to bringing Toki home. I was not aware of their interest and knowledge of her until 2017 when I got a phone call out of the blue from a council member who wanted to know about the campaign. And so, of course, I told him everything that I could 
over the course of about an hour on the phone. And then he said, well, how can we help? <laughs> and I said, uh, music to my ears. And I, I would just love the Lummy support, just moral support for her coming home in whatever way. Unbeknownst to me, the council had voted and had decided by resolution that it was their sacred obligation to bring Toki home as a kidnapped, stolen relative. And I began to learn then the depth of that connection, of that sense of the orcas, they call Kwiltomachen, the people who live under the waves, that they are their family, that they are people like them who live under the waves, and that Toki was one of them and one of the Lummies, the Laktamesh people, as they, they are known to themselves, and that it was very, very heartfelt. And that brought a whole new perspective and a whole new deep emotional tie to her that that I could not present, of course. And I, I think it's just been so beautiful and so clear and so sincere. And when the Friends of Toki was formed in January of 2022, that on the board, in the founding board, was Raynell Morris, who is a Lummi matriarch who has been carrying the campaign with a few others, and just recently a renewal of that resolution from the Lummi Council to bring her home as a sacred obligation. So she represented beautifully that tradition of the ancestors clearing Toki's path home. And now she's with the ancestors, and it's it's very sad, but it was a very deep connection that I have learned so much from. So I am forever grateful to the Lemmys for coming forth and and requiring, I mean, demanding, <laughs> insisting on Toki coming home. It was just so so meaningful to me, and my my depth of of feeling with the Lummies, uh, feeling the power of their traditions was over the course of three days in Miami in 2018 when the Toki Totem was brought to Miami. And we went and took part in three days of ceremony and talks and drumming and singing and, and laying hands on the totem. And then a demonstration right beside the tank with Toki in it and calling out and singing out and playing her family's calls to her from that distance. And, you know, we hope that she heard. And all of that had a big impact on me. They, they really feel that spirit. And, and I felt that spirit with them. Can you talk about her naming uh, by the Lummi, how that came about? And... Yes. Her her names, of course, you know, began as Tokitai, which was actually not given to her by any natives. They were given to her by the veterinarian who came out from the sequarium to choose her. But he, much to his everlasting credit, gave her that indigenous name. That is a word that is from the Chinook language. 
meaning nice day, pretty colors. It's sort of a friendly greeting you know, of all the tribes when they met on the trail or in canoes. But then in 2018, I think, the Lummi, Lummi chief, Chief Salik, gave her the name Skali Chaktanat in honor of the village on the banks of Pen Cove, where she was last with her family, the ancient Lummi village that was there that they still have a name for, Skali Chuck. And the suffix Tanout means the woman or female. So I sort of think of that name as roughly translating as Pen Cove woman, a woman of Pen Cove. It means that she is of that village uh, in Pen Cove. So that, that's the meaning, and it's, it's a beautiful name, I think. Now, can you talk a little bit about her tank? Because it is my understanding that even by the terrible standards that were set to protect marine animals, her tank has never met those standards. That's right, yeah. Uh, her tank violated the very dismal and inadequate standards of the Animal Welfare Act in at least five different ways. Definitely the size of the tank was uh, inadequate, and there was no shade, and there was no protection from anybody who would lean over and drop something on her or in her mouth or something. And there were several other violations. Um, and we didn't even know about the gross violations uh, that were finally uncovered in 2019, 2020. 2021 by the USDA when they did inspections. Uh, but even the inspector general of the USDA said that tank is illegal. <laughs> I mean, he, you know, the inspector general told the inspectors that it was illegal. So uh, there was no question. Uh, the USDA made up excuses. You know, they they said at one point, oh, she can swim under that work island. It's in the middle. Well, no, it's a concrete wall and all sorts of just flimsy excuses so that they would not have to close the whale stadium, which they should have done. Well, certainly, they as soon as the AWA went into effect, the Animal Welfare Act, it, it was illegal. But certainly, I was a part of suits that PETA waged against the Seaquarium to point out and, and against the USDA for not shutting down the, the whale stadium, which they should have done back in, it was about 2014 or 15, I think, was the first lawsuit. And if the judges and the USDA had uh, acted legally at that time, they would have closed down the whale stadium and that would have propelled her back home. That would have set the stage. Uh, regardless of who was the owner uh, at the time, because she would no longer be generating revenue. She would become an economic liability, and uh, there would be no other place for her to go uh, than back to her native habitat, which is the best place anyway. So that could have happened if they had followed the law, their own laws. They violated their own regulations back, you know, well, since the AWA was first put on the books in about 1972 or 73, after Toki was captured. But certainly, after a lawsuit to point out the violations, she should have, have uh, been given a ticket to ride right then, but no. 
What were these gross violations you just mentioned? Uh, the size of the tank is the primary one. Uh, it's supposed to be at least three times the length of the animal uh, in all four dimensions, and it's only 35 feet from the wall of the tank to the work island, and then it's 80 feet long, but it's that shortest dimension that matters the most. So that's that's a gross violation. Uh, no shade, and they never did provide shade. I don't know why they couldn't string a tarp over her head, you know, over over the tank, you know, to protect her from the midday sun, and the ability of people to just lean over the rail and drop something on her, because it's only about a three-foot rail all around, and she's right underneath it. And I forget the other violations. They're listed in the legal papers. The workstation is the thing that always struck me as the most horrific. Can you explain that? Because I, without visuals, it's hard to get across. Yeah. That that tank, like, to the way I picture it, she couldn't even do, like, the lazy circles that other orcas in captivity could do because there was this platform sticking out in the middle of her right. tank. Right in the middle. And there was space on either side of that platform, but sometimes they put up gates so that there was not even the ability to go around to the back side of the platform. But it it definitely restricted her movements to a very tight U-turn, a constant, a very small oval. You know, the wall's 80 feet at the most. Uh, and about, well, when she went around the work island, I would estimate that's about 50 feet by 80 feet outside perimeter that she was restricted to. And uh, yet, this is uh, uh, so awesome, it just blows me away that she used that space to get exercise on her own, no trainers present. She would use that 80 by 50 foot oval and do speed laps. It would take her two or three laps to build up the speed, build up the momentum, and then she'd do two or three more laps at this breakneck speed. I mean, she would be throwing a bow wave out of the pool and just disappearing, except for you'd see a streak under the water. And she'd pop up and catch a breath and keep going. That was her workout. That was her way of staying fit. And I, I believe that was uh, part of the secret to her longevity. And also, of course, any runner knows or anybody who does exercises knows that once you get those endorphins up, you know, you get to feel good. Once you're warmed up, uh, it really feels good to exercise. So I think, you know, it felt good and it kept her healthy, I think. I'd like to circle back to one thing that you mentioned when we started off, which is that she was presumed to be four. Now, that's always been presented to me as just a given that she was four. What was, well, where, can you explain that just a little bit? Yeah, sure, I can. In Eric Hoyt's book, which is sort of the, the, the Bible of those early captures in the early days from the 70s, and he has a, a, a list, an appendix with all of the captive orcas and their length that was given. And... Uh, you know, I forget it right now, but uh, her length was given to be, I'm thinking, 10 or 11 feet. And then I talked to Terry Newby, who was the Washington Fish and Wildlife Observer 
who was also a participant, actually, although he had deep misgivings about the whole thing. But but he was there, and I talked to him, and he said, oh, no, they didn't take any that were that large, that long. So that would mean that she would be only about eight or nine feet, you know. And, of course, there's a whole lot of variability in the length, like there is the height of people. So nothing is... uh you know, definitive, but she could have been five or six years old. And so, you know, I I, I just, I, I took Terry Newby's word for it. He was pretty adamant. And so I said four, that she was probably captured at four. I think I probably said that in the mid-90s, and that's been what everybody has picked up and treated as fact, and it was the best fact I had, but, you know, still an estimate. So, she could well have been five or six years old. I don't know. Now, you shared the front page of the Seattle paper today, and this was the story on the cover. That's right. Can you talk a little bit about the reaction that you're seeing there and about the memorial that you're off to tonight? Oh, boy. Yeah. As of Yesterday afternoon, about 2 p.m., when I got the first call from the Seattle Times reporter who had seen a tweet about 10 seconds earlier by Eduardo Albor, the owner of the Dolphin Company, who said that Toki had departed and that she was a warrior, past tense, I uh, my heart dropped, and within another 10 or 20 seconds, I got an emergency call for a meeting and uh, the word was out, and it immediately hit the media, and and I'm talking everywhere. New York Times ran an obituary. Seattle, Miami, every every kind of media, print, radio, blogs, uh, and the vast number of people on a wide range of Facebook pages and and other groups picked it up and repeated it with broken hearts, with horrific pain in their hearts for what what they just heard. And it has just reverberated more and more and more. And it still is. I'm getting messages. This is the next day, and I'm getting so many messages. And, and well, we all are. I mean, they're being uh, broadcast in all kinds of different ways. So it's just ongoing. And some of our staff felt like they wanted to come together. So they uh, decided to have a kind of a memorial at the Langley Whale Center on Whidbey Island this evening, Saturday evening at 6 o'clock. And they alerted uh, the staff, but also put it on Facebook. Uh, They put a beautiful memorial I found a great photo by Rachel Anderson that now is everywhere, and that generated a huge amount of interest. So I don't know what it's going to be. A lot of people are going to come. Seattle Times says they are coming. There will be various media. Some of it will be live-streamed as part of Toki TV, which is for over a year. We've had Toki TV every Sunday at 1 o'clock. Uh, which is just a small handful of us that varies every week, but uh, with some special guests and a lot of just really good 
people and and uh, stories and information. And Annette, who was the creator and kind of the hostess of Toki TV, was completely broken up by her passing and immediately jumped on a plane to go to Miami uh, just to be with her as close as possible. And so did Raynell Morris, Quilehila, the Lummi matriarch who has been so supportive and is on the board of the Friends of Toki. They went to Miami and they will hold a vigil there at nine o'clock Eastern, which is six o'clock Pacific. So it'll be the same time and live streamed on Toki TV. And uh, that'll be the YouTube channel. Toki TV, but also on the Facebook page on several of them, actually, but on uh, the Orca Network Lolita slash Tokite Facebook page. So at least some of it, you know, maybe the altar. You know, this is really meant for us to be able to get together and hug and cry together. So uh, I don't know how much it'll be, you know, for public consumption, but there will be an altar and there will be a few of us that will say a few words, and they will be live-streamed. Now, I'd really like to get a sense from you about her legacy, because right now there is a phenomenal amount of interest in the Southern residents because of her, that, that I feel her story has once again driven global interest around the Southern residents in the way that Talakwa did. So I was wondering if you have any thoughts on what her legacy can and should be. Well, Toki's legacy is building, building, building by the day. Her passing has just amplified everything that people feel and say and and know about her and brought in so many people that I didn't know were, you know, tuned in and, and devoted followers of Toki for years. And they are all now keyed in. They are all thinking about her and her life and her life as it should have been. And our story has been, of course, from the very beginning in the mid ninety, you know, mid nineties, that she is a member of her family. And increasingly, I've been trying to make that point that she still has that memory, that vivid identity in her own mind. She knows who she is as a member of her family. And that's what I want her legacy to be. And I think it is increasingly uh, that people understand that, you know, she wasn't just a circus animal. She was a member of the Southern residents and that she was raised. She learned the traditions. She learned the diet. She learned the language. She learned the family patterns, you know, bonds and associations and travel patterns. She learned the topography, the, you know, bathymetry of the undersea, of all of the Salish Sea and along the coast, the entire range that her family traveled. That was her reality. That was in her mind all the time. I, I am positive of it. I mean, we, you know, have to consider many factors, you know, I mean, what's important to a Southern resident is their family. They're bonded for life, but also their habitat, their range, how to find fish and where to find them. And, you know, all of that would be just deeply imprinted in her mind. 
And of course, we have to consider the neuroanatomy, that is the brains that are five times the size of ours. And so that's a whole lot of memory capacity. And I just think that uh, all of that was just completely vivid every minute of her life. I think that that was what she really lived in, was her life before capture. She went through the routines. She made friends. She built trusting relationships with certain people. And, you know, that that is also her legacy. And I think a really important part of her to, to remember is her eagerness to make friends, to build relationships, to build trust, and to feel your feelings. She, she seemed to, well, you know, have this uncanny empathy. And of course, getting back to neuroanatomy, you know, orca brains have this paralimbic lobe that goes across the hemispheres and, and we don't have certainly not to that extent, and that seems, or the guesses are, that it's to enhance empathy and communication and and social awareness, and that she had all that. And she was able to to project that to a person, uh, that feeling, that sense of empathy, and to bring them in and to show just i mean people have said this so many times just with her look with her gaze with her posture that she was bringing them into her world and understanding them to a depth that they could feel was deeper than anybody in their lives was able to understand them even the mayor of miami-dade there's a great photo of her in a face-to-face mind meld I don't know what was going on, but I've heard from others that when that happens, you feel it deeply. And so she had that ability and did that freely. And it was just a a warm and wonderful feeling for everyone who experienced it. I was never so fortunate, but that's that's who she was. And that, I think, is a, a very important part of her legacy. And I think that is also... Uh, ties into her being a Southern resident. I think Southern residents are just like that. They're busy all the time, and they're in their family lives. They're they're socializing. They're doing their cultural traditions, but they also have this ability to connect with people at any time, all the time, and it happens every now and then. Luna up in Nootka Sound, when he was up there, all lost and lonely, He tried desperately to make friends with people, and that, unfortunately, was his downfall. But that's also because it was illegal to make eye contact with him, so he was not able to make trusting long-term relationships with people, or he might have not gotten into trouble. But that's their natural or their cultural tendency is to want to build friendships with people. That's part of her legacy, too. Thank you so much for making time for this and for all that you've been doing on, you know, for all that you've been doing for Tokadai. Thank you. Thanks again for checking out Scanner with Mark Larnian. Please subscribe so you don't miss upcoming interviews with historian and author Jason Colby. We'll be talking about the capture of Toki, something he's written about extensively. We'll also be talking to Gloria Pancrazi about her film Coextinction, 
amazing documentary about the Southern Resident Orcas and author David Schiffman on shark myths and mysteries. Please join our pod on Substack and at Patreon.com. Your support really does make this possible. You help us pay for the tech and the humans required to make this happen. And the more support we get, the more we can do stories like this. I'd also like to thank all our Patreon patrons, including Susie Venuda, Simon McNair, Robert Anderson, Darren Learn Young, and Yosef Wask. Scan is also brought to you by Orca Publishing, publishers of my three books about whales for younger readers, my two books about sharks for younger readers, and my next book for younger readers, which is going to be all about octopuses. Yep, it's octopuses, not octopi. And a very special thanks to our friends at Eagle Wing Whale Watching and Wildlife Tours. They are the team who took us out to meet Granny when we were filming our award-winning documentary, The 100-Year-Old Whale. If you would like to check out Granny's story, and Granny's story is really part of Toki's story as well. Again, one of those amazing Southern residents. Please subscribe to our newsletter where I'll be sharing links so you can watch that film for free. Follow us on social media. Please share the show with your friends. Since we may no longer be on social media, share it with everyone, however you can especially the stories we're telling right now about Tokatai. Reviews on your favorite podcast provider are always appreciated. If this podcast didn't work for you, this is Dolly Parton's America. Hello, Dolly. Scan is stationed in Saanich, B.C. territories of Wasanich, Songhees, and Esquimalt peoples. Our executive producer, the always awesome Rain Banu. Scan a site, courtesy of our Wizard of Web, Katie Brown. Research on these stories, thanks to the unsinkable Courtney Bill. Audio magic courtesy of our powerful producer, Bug Lewis. Scanna's theme song, Scanna, is by Lee Abramson. And now, Toki. <laughs>